Ian Macmillan told me about his love of surrealism and his use of it in two of his poems. This one's called The Meaning of Life. It's a Yorkshire dialect rhapsody. The idea of this is that I got fed up of people showing me Yorkshire dialect poems that didn't apparently make any sense. So I thought, right, I'll write one that doesn't make any sense at all. And yet the more I read it, the more it appears to mean something. From under canal, like a Waterfield cellar, coming up like a pitman from a Dublin twice, I said, hey, you were looking poorly. He said, them nights are draining. Downstairs, like a gob machine, sucking toffees up a ladder like a ferry up a ladder in a fog. I said, hey, you were looking poorly. He said, half a dozen eggs. Of a topping double-decker, groaning like a whippet, like a lamplighter's daughter in a barrel full of milk. I said, hey, you were looking poorly. He said, nights a dozen eggs. Down canal like a barrow full of gillis's parsnips, coming up like a cage of men in lit-up shiny hats. I said, hey, you were looking poorly. He said, half a dozen nights. Under canal, on a pushbike, glowing like an eggshell, up a ladder with a pigeon and a broken neck. I said, hey, you were looking poorly. He said, I feel like half a dozen eggs. Of at night, on a shiny bike, we lit up at, perfect foot poorly, we heads like eggs. I said, hey, you died last week. He said, aye, did you miss me? <laughs> and that's, that's just full of them kind of Yorkshire dialect cliches that you get. But it's also, it also works because it has that repetitive incantatory quality that you were ascribing to psalms and hymns. Okay. It's like a subversive pantoum. Mm. And what I like about it is the, the ghostliness of it. That's right. He, he, I said, hey, you died last week. He said, hey, did you miss me? Partly because a lot of these kind of older dialect poems, not just Yorkshire dialect, at the end, you know, the protagonist is dead and they like the idea of the ghostly meeting. And just that repetition, you know, hey, you're looking poorly. Half a dozen eggs. Nights a dozen eggs. Half a dozen nights. I feel like half a dozen eggs. That rep- perfect for poorly, we heads like eggs. I wrote it straight out, there was no revision in that. I just wrote it so it was a kind of riff, I got into it. But then afterwards you think, yeah, perhaps it is about all sorts of things, you know, coming up like a cage of men in lit-up shiny hats, that's people coming out of the pit, up a ladder with a pigeon and a broken neck. Just this idea, just this kind of lonely bloke, halfway up a ladder in a, outside a terraced house, there's a pigeon flying around him, he's got a broken neck so he doesn't work at the pit anymore. And yeah, the repetition, the incantatory nature of it, gives it a kind of power. Yeah, it does. Do you enjoy coming up with these kinds of what might be called surrealist connections between two things? Yeah, I, I love surrealist connections. I think it's partly because I get bored with poems that tell me things that are kind of fairly obvious. You know, sometimes you read a poem and you think, well, actually, you're making a very small point there and a stand-up comedian could have made it better or a, a journalist could have made it better. What I'd rather have is poets who really want to play with language and who really want to mess about with language and who want to say, look, language is a completely free thing and I'm here to play. If you want to make small points, tell me a joke. But if you want to play with language, then let's write a poem. Trust those moments when something happens, you've got no idea where it comes from, write them down, put them down, because that's your brain making connections. Because you've read a lot of poems, because you've spent your life looking at poems, reading poems, that doesn't mean your connections have to be laborious. Your connections can become instinctive, I think. There's a wonderful analogy of years passing, which yeah. you imagine to be a colossal and mind-bending event, but you actually described as being like somebody almost at the end of a bag of crisps. Yes. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what that was. The, the poem's called I'd Better Not, because I couldn't think of a title for it. And I rang up my mate, who was going to publish it in a magazine. I said, look, I've got a poem here, but I just can't think of a title for it. Can you give me a title? He said, I'd better not. I said, thanks. And I just love that kind of randomness. A man leaned over to a man in a pub and said in a voice, I used to be 37, but now I'm 51. And that's how the years go, in handfuls, like somebody is almost at the end of a bag of crisps and they tip the bag up and it's as though they're drinking crisps. That's how the years go. And that was, again, just from, from something that happened. I was sat on a bus and this man turned to his man and he said, I used to be 37, now I'm 51. And I thought, 
God, that's right. But it turned out he was talking about his tote numbers <laughs> at the club. But it don't matter, does it? That don't matter. You know, thirty. What a great line. And then I thought, I always find it interesting when you're in a pub, and people buy a bag of crisps, and they kind of get to the end, and instead of putting their hand in the crisp, they kind of bang the bottom of the bag of crisps to knock the crisps into the mouth. And I thought that's how years go by. You know, I'm 52, and I was 37 five minutes ago. It wasn't as I was searching for an image, but it was one of those things. I think it's because you have to walk about in a state of alertness and a state of receptivity and a state of being prepared to be surprised by joy. That if you can walk about and see somebody eating some crisps and without laboriously thinking about it, think, that's what, that's what years are like, that's where they go. And I think you should. You should always be there with a notebook, always write stuff down, things that seem irrelevant. If you don't write it down, you forget. You get home, you think, I had a great idea. What was it? But if you write it down, then it's going to be there. And you'll come back to it and... It'll have altered. I've kept notebooks of mine for years. You look through and you think, well, what was that? And sometimes it reminds you of something. So, yeah, I'll always keep a notebook, I recommend. Yep. We've been talking about analogies, similes, metaphors in poetry, and we've been talking about repetition in poetry. But do you think that prose needs to have analogies and repetitions as well? Yeah, I think prose, the best prose, my favourite prose writers, my two favourite prose writers are American, John Cheever and Joan Didion. John Cheever is the most fantastic writer because he, his prose is rhythmic, he repeats, he does long lines, he does kind of mystical lines. Like said, It came from a time when New York was lit by a river light and almost everyone wore a hat. And Which could easily have come from a poem. From a poem because it's got that rhythm to it. He's got a great story called Oh, City of Broken Dreams. That just keeps repeating, just little lines repeating. And the, the reason they stay in our head you know, that, that, those lines, because they are like poems, because that's what poems do. So, yeah, I think prose can be rhythmic and it can repeat. When I hear you read, I always hear much more repetition in a poem than I'd realised was originally there. <laughs> and I, I think some of the most successful poems are poems in which the repetition and the resonance is not just in a, a single line, but in an image which is played with, which is riffed with, as we mm. were discussing. And there's a great poem in your collection, Perfect Catch, called Flat Bull. I'll read the poem first, and I'll talk about it. Flat Bull. Excess baggage, they wanted to call it, but I insisted it was hand luggage. They compromised. It sat next to me. On the plane back to England, the Flat Bull. At home, I kept it in the garden, where it wandered about flatly. Sometimes he could see it. Sometimes it was just a line against the trees. Mr Law next door was doing his garden. What's that, he said, his flat cap just above the hedge. It's a flat bull, I said. I brought it back from Mexico. That night he tried to fight it, rushing at it with his fork, losing his flat cap, breaking his glasses, shouting and grunting, his wife watching from the window, doing the ironing. What I love about that is the way in which the ironing and the flat cap are suddenly and surprisingly moved into the poem. Where did that one come from? I did a tour of Mexico in 1997. One of the things we found was this. It was an advert for a kind of tequila, and you're driving out of Mexico City, and you see what appears to be something flat, and it's a bull, and it's completely, it's a flat bull, and you drive up to it, and then you turn the corner, there it is. You can see the whole thing, this flat bull. Spent ages walking across the grass to this flat bull, and we got to this flat bull, and it was huge, bigger than it looked from the road, this massive flat bull. And then I found the flat bull kind of invading my dreams while I was in Mexico. It became the symbol of Mexico for me, this flat bull. And then I thought I just had a little kind of fantasy. I thought, what if I brought it back? And then it was that idea about when you get home, I find if I do these trips abroad, which I don't do very often, but if you go abroad, 
I found there's no point when I get home telling them about it because their lives have been going on. You know, the wife, the kids. Hello, I've just been to Mexico. Guess what I saw? They're not bothered. They, they don't, couldn't care less. So you end up going, I saw a flat bull. You know, they're going, forget it. So, so And Mr Lowe next door, he's still there, Mr Lowe, my next door neighbour, wonderful man. Nice guy. And I thought, what if Mr. Lowe saw the flat bull? What would happen? And I had this fantasy about Mr. Lowe getting really cross with this flat bull. That's why he tries to attack it with a fork. And his wife, she would have been doing the ironing. She's one of the people who irons all the time. So it all becomes flat, you know. The ironing's flat. The cap's flat. The bull's flat. The story's flat. I've come back. I'm deflated because I've come back like a big bull. Hey, I've been to Mexico, me. Come on, we're not bothered. The kids were little at the time, you know. Come and help with this washing up. So it's that idea of, like... I am the flat bull. I'm the flat bull. That's what I've become. Oh, yes. <laughs> is this a poem which, in the process of writing, you realised, actually, when you were in that kind of trance-like position of writing, that the flat cap and the iron would come in as well? I'm honestly telling you this. I wrote it and afterwards noticed the cap was flat and afterwards noticed the iron in flattened things. So that's, that proves to me that maybe... This kind of writing comes from a place beyond language and beyond thought. So you write the thing as a kind of riff or a kind of little anecdote or a kind of something that, you know, is about deflation. And afterwards, somebody pointed out and says, so he's got a flat cap on, like the bull. I thought, do you know? And then I see the ironing's flat. And I really, I'm not being disingenuous, I hadn't noticed that. And that's because I think you write with a trance-like state. You enter this trance-like state, you start banging away, and because you've read a lot of poems and because you listen to a lot of language and because you're obsessed with language, then little synapses are going to come together and they're going to put a flat cap in. And the word flat iron and the flat iron and the iron flattens things, you know. And it's because, you can see why really, I've been writing the word flat a lot. I've been writing the word flat a lot so in my head the word flat was bubbling away. The most unpromising material is the best, I think, because, you know, as a poet you can turn it into pure gold because it's not the sort of stuff anybody else would have seen. You're standing on a bridge... You see a sunset, everybody can see the sunset. There's only you can see the chip wrapper down there, you know, and the, and the fork. And the, somebody walking past who's got a bit of a scarf coming out of a pocket. You know, that's the kind of thing, and then we should be open to all that. Salima Hill's a great example, though, because Salima Hill, on the surface of it, sometimes is writing about nothing, but at the same time she's writing about everything. And she's allowing influencers to come in, and she lets the reader in. She lets the reader do some work. I'm a big fan of poets that I can't understand, so that I can spend a bit of time with them, and get meanings out of it that they didn't intend to put in. I think sometimes we, we do treat poetry a bit too much like Rubik Cubes, where we go, wait a minute, I've got it, clickety-clickety-click, I've lined them up, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's a poem about moles, you know, and you think, well, all right, you could have told them that. I'd prefer it if the, the writer trusts the reader to play with their poem, just like they have, because as soon as you've written it, while you're writing it, maybe it belongs to you, but as soon as you've written it, even if it's not published, it's somebody else's. Let them have a look at it, let them see what they can do with it. Because reading's such a creative act, let them create it by reading from the open university for more information go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use